Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. But along the way, those heart issues are crucial because money is not just a spreadsheet sort of thing. It's not a calculator sort of thing. It's a heart sort of thing. You know, where our money is there, our heart will be also, is what the Bible says. Well, that's Matt Bell, and he's our guest today on Focus on the Family, talking about how to teach your kids about finances. Even if they're as young as four, five, or six, they can start to learn now to manage their own money. And the conversation is going to help you set up your child for success. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, I know parents who have been really intentional about teaching their children about how to manage money, and uh, most of them have done really well. They're adults now, if you can believe that. Mm -hmm. I used to know these kids, but now they're adults. (laughs) Um, It doesn't always work that way, but predictably it will. And uh, other kids that uh, maybe weren't taught those uh, principles, might not be doing as well with those dollars. The point is the choices we make about money can have repercussions for generations. Mm-hmm. And our attitude that we teach our kids involuntarily, probably, uh, it matters. And today we're going to cover that. So you won't have the excuse, I didn't know what to teach my kids. <laughs> right. And we have a great guest, Matt Bell. Uh, He's a personal finance writer and a speaker. He's the managing editor at Sound Mind Investing. His wife uh, is named Jude, and they have three children, and he's written a great new book with Focus on the Family. It's called Trusted, Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God-Honoring Money Management. Get a copy from us here at the ministry uh, at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast, or when you call 800, the letter A in the word family. Matt, welcome to Focus. Thank you. It's really an honor, and I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. It's great. It's good to have you, and thanks for partnering with us on the book. Um, It's always great when we have good content that we can provide together, and hopefully change people's lives for the better, right? Uh, That's the goal. That is the goal. Let me kick off with uh, something you mentioned in the book, which is comparing your financial journey to, I think, one of my favorite uh, parables is uh, the prodigal son. I've never thought about it in a financial context Mm -hmm. other than the one son squanders all his inheritance. So Mm -hmm. I get that part. How did you relate to it? Yeah, well, that's basically it. I mean, it really checks a lot of the boxes of that of that parable. Mm. So when I was in my mid-20s, I inherited about $60,000 from an uncle. Total surprise. I had no idea this. Love those uncles. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good surprise. I mean, I'm yeah, sad that he sure. passed away, but well, for course. him to have been generous to me like that was yeah. an unexpected gift. And I really had good intentions with that money. I thought if I could do something unique, why don't I create a business that I would love to do all of my days? How old are you at this point? I was mid-20s, so wow, 24-ish, nice. 25-ish. And um, I love to play golf. I love to travel. So I tried to think of a way to create a business out of that. And I created a newsletter for people who take golf vacations, which (laughs) became this great excuse to go and play Pebble Beach, which I did, and play some of the great golf courses in North Carolina and even southern Spain and Puerto Rico. So it was great. It was really everything I dreamed it might be, except profitable. (laughs) (laughs) The most important part of the business. Yeah, so I was loving life. I was, when I was back home in Chicago, where I was living at the time, I was enjoying some of the better restaurants and clothing stores and really just having a good time with what seemed like this endless supply of money. And so when the money ran out, I was so blind to what was happening with that money and so acclimated to the life I was living that I just kept funding that life on credit cards to the point where I was then $20,000 in credit card debt. So, yeah, inherited some money, traveled to some distant countries to play golf in this case, squandered the money, 
My parents encouraged me to move home with them for a time, which I did, which I'm so thankful that they yeah, were there sure. for me. But to go from basically living the life to living in my parents' basement in the small town where I grew up, that was really tough. And I literally found out what it means to be depressed for the first couple of months out there. But through that experience, a good friend from college who had become a Christian after I graduated, he reached out and shared his faith with me, and that kind of set me on a path of exploring matters of faith, and 11 months later gave my, gave my heart to, to Jesus. And, um, and that was, you know, so somebody said recently, if you think back to that 60 grand, what that would be worth today if you invested yeah, right. it? No, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. We don't even want to think about that. Matt, we're going to let you off the hook. Yeah. But let me ask you about your relationship with God in that, in that way. I mean, you made that commitment to Christ. And and then how it related to money. I mean, obviously, you're a money guy. I can kind of sense you're a numbers guy. I think you probably like that. And people would say, you know, you look at the scripture, there's two things that are really talked about a lot, a relationship with God and money. That's right. So money matters. Yeah, absolutely. How did that relate for you, God and money? Yeah, well, it was a huge wake-up call for me. It, it told me, look, if you can take 60 grand as a gift and turn it into 20 grand of credit card debt, you've got a few things to learn about <laughs> yeah, money. you're going the wrong direction. <laughs> so I started learning. I just became a sponge. And the first church I started going to as a new Christian, they had a stewardship ministry. I'd never heard of such a thing. I'd never heard of a church teaching about money. I've heard of churches asking for money, but I never heard of a church teaching people about money. Stop and right there. If you'd like to support Focus on the Family, <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, so it was it was very eye-opening for me, and I, and I just had a hunger. I thought, wow, I'd love to serve in this ministry. I think they were hurting for volunteers. I really should have been served by the ministry, but I got a chance to start serving in some ways where I couldn't hurt people too badly and just <laughs> loved it. And just love teaching people. And as I was learning and, and getting my, myself out of debt, I just, I, I, through that experience, I, I found uh, Christ, I found faith, and I found my life's work. Yeah, that's so good. You know, often, I think in the book of Matthew, it's referred to as you can only either love God or love money. Yeah. You, don't, you can't do both. You yeah. can't replace one for the other. Some people might be confused by that. What, what does the definition of loving money, we all need it. What does loving money look like? Yeah, I think a lot of people think that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, but it doesn't say that. It says the love of money is mm. a root of all kinds of evil. And there is an important distinction there because, you know, money is a tool. Money is a gift. Money can be used for so much good. Money is it's impartial by itself, but we do things with money. We start to think ways about money. We get attached to money. We, we think money means something. And so that's where our hearts can get wrapped up in money and we can start serving money instead of using money as a tool. Huh, that's good. I mean, and it's clear, you want to love God, not yeah, money. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, but it all revolves. I mean, this is how the economy works, right? Um, as parents, it can feel daunting to uh, consider how to start teaching your kids about money. Gene and I did the 10% for savings, 10% for tithe yeah. when they were little. And, uh, you know, then the other 80% will talk about how to spend that wisely, right? Yeah. Which usually ended up being uh, something like the Death Star Lego build, <laughs> but for $600. I was proud of Trent. He saved up for that one. Hmm. And uh, I think we met him halfway, but he had to save up three, $400 yeah, as a 12, 13-year-old. So that was good. But, but speak to that idea of the role of a parent to help their children better understand money. Sometimes parents, we're not thinking about it. It's not on our radar. I'm just trying to keep them off the screens today. <laughs> Teaching right. them about money is something four or five steps down the road. Right. Yeah, I like to think of uh, and tell people, look, there's so much at stake here and there's so much potential here in teaching our kids at money. There's so much at stake here because it isn't 
that if we don't teach our kids about money, they won't learn. They will learn, but the consumer culture will be the teacher. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot at stake here, but there's also a lot of potential here, meaning that if a young kid can start to understand money from a biblical perspective and, and start to develop certain financial, some biblically informed financial practices with money, the good that can be done is immeasurable. Mm. So I like to think about compounding or exponential returns, which is typically talked about with investing. You know, you could turn $100 a month over the course of 50 years. If it's invested, the typical stock market return historically, that'll turn into $1.7 million. I did the math. I am kind that's of a numbers amazing, guy. That's amazing, actually. <laughs> $1.7 million? Yeah. Wow. And, and so that's exponential growth. And that same principle can be applied to so many aspects of money. If we get a young person with a generous heart and we foster that generous heart and we wrap that in some generous practices, you think about the impact that God could have through her over her lifetime, not just in the tangible investments and God honoring causes, but in her own heart and the joy with which she lives, the meaning with which she lives. And to grow up with a healthy, grateful perspective on money and an intention to use it wisely because it's God's. And so I'm going to be intentional to use it wisely. The good that could come about from that child into their long-term relationship with Christ, into their relationship with their future spouse, into their ability to make the difference with their life they were designed to make, it's immeasurable. Yeah. So I love the idea of helping parents <laughs> mm. teach their kids about money. Well, let's get into it. You mentioned in the book uh, four temperaments yeah. that children have toward money. What are they? Yeah, well, there are four. So there's different temperament classification systems out there, but the simplest one goes back to Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. And so let's see if I can remember them. It's the, the choleric and it's the uh, sanguine, the melancholy and the phlegmatic. And so those are not just, you know, we all have a certain God-given design and that's a gift. We were designed a certain way intentionally. And financially speaking, there are financial ramifications that come with each temperament. There are financial strengths that come with these temperaments, and there are some financial kind of watchouts that come with them. I mean, as adults, I often find that if we're arguing with our spouse about something, it's typically not what we think it's about. It's often a clash of temperaments. We're seeing the world through very different perspectives, and that's our temperament. And so we can start to identify that in our kids. I mean, when a kid is maybe early teens or so, they could start to discern their temperament and start to become a student of how God has wired them up. Because like I said, each temperament comes with certain inherent financial strengths and certain inherent financial weaknesses. Yeah. Let me let me just pull out an example. Yeah. So pick one that maybe the on either extreme yeah. uh, where you're spending a lot or you're like saving a lot. Right. So the sanguine temperament. The sanguine is kind of the outgoing life of the party, the sort of person everybody loves to be around. They're very engaging. They're very winsome. And so this person naturally tends to be a giver. They love to be generous. They're, they're very thoughtful in, in being generous. The downside is they don't typically like to use a budget. A budget hems them in. <laughs> Man, I'm feeling it right now. You may be talking about me. <laughs> somebody once said, I've never met a sanguine accountant. And, <laughs> That's probably you know, true. It is probably yeah. very true. Yeah. And, and so, again, some strengths, some weaknesses. And so to be a student of how God has wired us up and to learn to maximize our strengths and kind of manage around our weaknesses would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's go to the other extreme where, what, there's a birthday party? Do I have to spend money on that? <laughs> so that might be the phlegmatic. So the phlegmatic, <laughs> if you're a saver of stuff and of money, if your closets are brimming with stuff, you might be a phlegmatic. Phlegmatic tend to be the most likable of all the temperaments. They tend to be very easygoing, very steady 
you go, kind of a steady plotter sort of person. When it comes to money, though, they tend to be pretty frugal to the point of maybe being a little cheap. And so even giving can be a challenge for a phlegmatic. <laughs> Those are the extremes to get the other two, get the book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Matt, yeah, you've mentioned in your book that the, uh, the heart change is a big part of making smart financial choices. Yeah. Um, how do we coach that into our kids? Yeah, so I talk about three parenting roles in the book, and, and through these parenting roles, we can get at those heart issues. So the parenting roles are the gatekeeper. So that's the, the one where it's not always fun to say no to our kids, but it's really healthy to say no to our kids to set parameters and boundaries. So they've spent their entire allowance, now they see something else, they're coming to you for a loan, just say no. Kind of hard to do, but good for their character development. The, the next one is the teacher, where we're overtly teaching God's word. So in the house of the wise, there are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish person devours all they have. Good for a kid to memorize that, mm. that we're not going to spend it all. We're going to maintain a reserve. That's a God-honoring thing to do. And now we're teaching them where to save that money. And then the role model is the most important one, might be the most convicting one, where we need to be kind of living out loud in front of our kids. But along the way, those heart issues are crucial because money is not just a spreadsheet sort of thing. It's not a calculator sort of thing. It's a heart sort of thing. Mm. You know, where, where our money is there, our heart will be also, is what the Bible says. I used to think it should be the other way around, but really it's more profound the way the Bible teaches it, no surprise, that where, where our, our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so as we start to orient our finances in God-honoring ways, it deepens our faith. You know, uh, Matt, with some parents, and I, I am in this category, the bombardment of our children in a consumer-oriented economy yeah. like ours. I mean, yeah. America is a great nation, and I'm so thankful that it was shaped and formed the way it was. And I think it's the best system given the foibles of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, it pulls on the best things. And then hopefully, like you said, we will be a morally sound people, a religious people that can give and do the things that God requires of mm -hmm. our wealth and of our abundance. So that's the ideal. But now pull it back to, I mean, television or screen time and bang, get these tennis shoes, bang, get this kind of outfit, bang. I mean, it's just, it's all day long. Probably hundreds of impressions, if not thousands of impressions every day. That's right. You have a story in the book about your son, Jonathan, that kind of illustrated some of this. What happened? So when Jonathan was very young, um, we were at a stage of life where I was being very frugal, <laughs> especially <laughs> frugal. And I, I cut our cable television subscription at the time. I got, a, got an antenna for the TV. Yeah, we did that. <laughs> and so yeah. the problem was it didn't work very well. But we got one particular channel that the kids loved to watch. And it was the strangest thing because, yeah, there were some good kids programs on there. But they had this strange mix of commercials. And, in fact, one day I was making breakfast in the kitchen. And Jonathan wandered in after watching some TV. And he said, Dad, very earnestly, do you need money right now? He had seen a payday today commercial on TV on a kids program, loan. right? Yeah. And so I assured him, no, we don't need money right now. And he toddled back over to, to watch the program. But, but that's right. And so it's become so much more sophisticated. Advertising and marketing, you know, even the word consumer, that word didn't used to be the common way that we were described. We were described as workers or citizens. But in the, around the 1920s, we started being referred to as consumers. And if you look it up, that means to use up and, and waste and squander. And you say, well, that explains a lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I want our kids to grow up as stewards or managers of God's resources, not consumers. Well, and again, uh, saving is a uh it can be an elusive 
treat, if I could say it that way. It, it does have great benefits. I mean, saving money, then you can buy a car and not have to take a loan or right. as much of a loan, et cetera. Yeah. But it, it can be a hard concept for a, a child who doesn't understand delayed gratification mm-hmm. and all. So, so how do you teach a child, hey, just wait for that lollipop? Yeah, it's so important because you're right. Saving money does build that character trait of delayed gratification. And so that's where we close the bank of mom and dad. That's where, like I said earlier, the kid uses up the entire um, allowance this week and wants something else. We can foster waiting in a variety of ways, even some non-financial ways, just planting vegetables together, just setting up family rituals like nobody eats dinner until everybody is seated and we've given thanks for the food. Certain waiting rituals can help our kids learn to wait. And then, like I said, when it comes to buying things, no, we're not going to buy everything that our kids want and we're not going to give them loans to get what they want. Um, They're going to need to wait. So just building that in as an expectation that fosters delayed gratification, which is one of the most important character traits. That's good. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. It's time to level up. Give your kids a safe, faith-focused, and biblically-based community, and so much more. Join the Adventures in Odyssey Club. Club members get on-demand access to the exciting Adventures in Odyssey series, including more than 900 episodes. With faith-building activities, parental controls, and a safe online community, the Adventures in Odyssey Club could be your best adventure yet. Learn more and start your free trial at adventuresinodyssey.com slash radio. Marriage podcasts usually go one of two ways. Relatable, but not helpful. Or helpful, but totally unrelatable to your marriage. The crazy little thing called Marriage Podcast has all the, whoa, that's me, marriage stories. And wow, I never knew that. Clinical wisdom to help your marriage thrive. Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage will be your favorite listen of your week. An amazing marriage is possible. It begins with you. Listen at crazylittlethingcalledmarriage.com. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Matt, you suggest in the book the proudest moment of your parenting, which I love, uh, was uh, around money and something that happened in a clothing store. So what happened? Yeah, I'm not sure it was the proudest moment of my entire parenting (laughs) journey, but it was a proud moment for sure. So we had been using a principle that we learned from Mary Hunt's great book, Raising Financially Confident Kids. And that is that we give our kids some of the money and make them responsible for certain certain categories. So in this case, clothing. So we had been with our kids many times before the clothing store. They've been able to pick out what they wanted. We told them how much they could spend, and and that was fine. But this was different. We gave them cash. We said, all right, $25 a month you get, each of you, for for clothing. You need to manage it on your own. So I'm at the store with with Andrew and Annika, and they're shopping for clothing, and they're holding an envelope full of $25 each, and they're navigating, making decisions, making trade-offs. Two of these are just one of those, and I really want this, but I can't afford it, so maybe I'll save up next month's allocation for clothing. And just watching them, it showed me what I call the funnel method or or what we learned early in our parenting journey of the funnel method of parenting, that we start small with responsibilities that we entrust to our kids and we open the funnel wider over time and give them more responsibility. I was watching that in practice. I was seeing them making these decisions, taking their envelope of cash to the cashier, paying for it, getting the change back. And on the one hand, I thought, wow, they're making thoughtful decisions. They're really owning this. That was really 
really satisfying to see that. And it was a little bittersweet because we want to put ourselves out of jobs. We want to raise kids that can make decisions on their on our own. But I saw that as never before that, oh, wow, we really are putting ourselves out of a job. I think we did that for a while. And then we realized the money's not in the envelope and there's no new clothes. What happens? <laughs> <laughs> so how do you keep them on track? You know, you got to be hands on. Yeah. Well, right. We need to. I mean, that's the whole idea that we're trusting them with little and seeing them be trustworthy. And then we trust them with more. So, yes, it does take parental supervision. How do you start um, to teach children about work and paying for things at that young age? I mean, have them do dishes, give them 25 cents. Absolutely. So connect the money thing with a job well done. You know, allowances are really important. Allowances are a surprisingly contentious topic within parents. Some parents never say that word. Kids have to earn everything they get. And and I get that. That's fine. They say as adults, people aren't just going to give them things. The important thing with an allowance, whether you, whether the kid has to earn every dollar or whether we give them some spending money, they have to learn to manage that money well. And it, it gives them the chance to manage money in a very practical way. But we have some friends, James and Amanda, in a small group. They have five kids. Their system is they have, they have three distinctions of jobs around the house. So they've got mandatory no-pay jobs, mandatory four-pay jobs, and optional four-pay jobs. And in those four-pay jobs, it could be that, that you typically get 50 cents to empty the dishwasher. That's a mandatory four-pay job. But you do it with a bad attitude or, you, or I have to like ask you three times to do it. That could suddenly become a mandatory for less paid job or a mandatory for no paid job. And so that's starting to mm, connect. I'm liking this. Mm. <laughs> it's connecting money to, to a diligent work ethic. Yeah, that could get a little complicated. You know, I do have a full-time job. So I get home, I'm going, uh, I, we need a chart for all that. I know. And so we have to find a system that works for us. I mean, not every parent does the allowance thing the same way. Yeah. Some people do have charts. They have a chalkboard in the kitchen, and they, yeah. they keep track, and that's fine and good. They might be wired up a little bit more analytically. As long as we're getting some money in our kids' hands, we're teaching them to be generous with the first portion. We're teaching them to save with the next portion. We're teaching them to make spending than the last priority. I like that, though, because it does differentiate. A little rough, tougher job should give a little more pay, yeah. and we recognize that. So you, you, there's equity in terms of a job well done and, yeah. and pay that is commensurate. Yeah. I might go up to a buck 50 on some things. <laughs> Raking leaves. I yeah. hate that job. <laughs> you can't pay me enough to do that one. Um, let me ask you, um, one of the most important things as a believer that we need to keep in mind is the spirit of generosity. Mm. I guess in some ways it's hard to be generous if you have nothing, mm. obviously. Um, I would think you could still have a spirit of generosity even if you don't have a lot my Mm -hmm. mom was like that she Mm -hmm. was a waitress and she gave money away like unbelievably to help other people to buy somebody dinner at the Mm -hmm. restaurant she worked at came out of her pocket and she was a very generous soul that way even though we didn't have much to eat ironically Mm -hmm. Um, but speak to that development of the generous spirit and how money can either harm that or help that and really how the biblical perspective helps that. Yeah, so important to cultivate that early. You know, John Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest people that ever lived, he said, I never would have been able to tithe on my first million dollars if I hadn't tithed on my first salary, which was a dollar fifty a week. Wow. And so, you know, if you wake up one day and you're 50 years old and you're making $100,000 and then you start to learn what the Bible teaches about generosity, that we were made in God's image and God is endlessly generous. And so generosity is, is part of our design. 
It's it's why the secular studies find that generous people are happier than people that are not generous. Mm. And so if we can foster that in our kids, that, that yes, we're going to do the 10, 10, 80, or as I prefer, 10, 40, um, 50, you know, have them save a little bit more aggressively, get them in the practice of doing that, but connect it to something real. Because when I was writing the book, I had breakfast one morning with some 20-something young men, all raised in Christian homes, all um, saw their parents tithing. None of them understood why. And so one of them even said it felt like they were sort of checking a box, like on the to-do list. And so really important for us to, yes, develop the practice, the expectation, but to teach why, that we're giving thanks to God. You know, what did David say? Who, are, who am I and who are my people that we could give as generously as this? We're only giving back a portion of what you've given to us. And so for kids to learn to see that everything we have is a gift from God to be managed for his purposes would be a good thing and to cultivate gratitude to consciously ask our kids as we pray with them in the evening what are you grateful for what was good today what yeah. how did God meet you today and you saw this in your son with a friend of his Aziz right <laughs> tell me that story. yes I love that story so one of the things we've tried to do to make giving real I mean dropping money in the giving basket is a good thing but it can feel kind of abstract for a kid where's that money going <laughs> um, and so we've tried to make it real for our kids by sponsoring some kids. And there's some ministries where you can sponsor a needy kid in another part of the world. Um, We sponsored a young man named Aziz in Burkina Faso. So it was a geography lesson too. We had to find that on the map. Um, But one day, one year, we gave him some extra money for his birthday. And he sent us back a picture of what he did with that extra money. He bought rice and soap for his family. Mm. The first things that our kids would do with some extra money, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, right. And so we were talking about Aziz one night over dinner. And the next morning, Jonathan came into the kitchen, and um, I hit him as a good loving father would do with a financial quiz. I said, Jonathan, <laughs> I said, what, what are the three things you can do with money? He said, um, you can uh, spend it, you can save it, or you can give it to Aziz. And I thought, that's good. I love that answer because he, he now generosity had a face. Now generosity was real for him. Yeah. And I loved him helping him make that connection. Yeah. Matt, this has been so good. I just appreciate what you've done in partnership with Focus. And uh, man, I'm hoping people will get a copy of this. You can do that. Just get in touch with us here at Focus on the Family. Make a gift of any amount. If you can become a monthly sustainer and help families through Focus on the Family, be part of the solution. We'll send you a copy of Matt's book as our way of saying thank you. One-time gift, we'll do that as well. If you can't afford it, we'll get it to you because uh, you really do need to understand the principles of finances. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, just get in touch with us and we'll get this into your hands to help your children become money wise. Yeah, request the book and uh, make a generous donation as you can. Uh, That title again, Trusted, Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God-Honoring Money Management. It's a terrific resource, and uh, we're so glad to have it here at Focus to partner with Matt. Again, get your copy when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Matt, again, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Such a pleasure to meet both of you guys, and so wonderful to partner with you. Mm. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening today to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith-building program for your family. Stay tuned. 
Your marriage can be redeemed, even if the fights seem constant, even if there's been an affair, even if you haven't felt close in years. No matter how deep the wounds are, you can take a step toward healing them with a Hope Restored Marriage Intensive. Our biblically-based counseling will help you find the root of your problems and face challenges together. We'll talk with you, pray with you, and help you find out which program will work best. Call us at 1-866-875-2915. I was getting ready to speak at a marriage conference, and I was listening to Focus on the Family, and Gary Smalley was on Focus on the Family. And Gary Smalley, in his inimitable way, said, I'm going to tell you the one thing. If you can learn how to forgive... He said, that's how to resolve conflict and forgive in a marriage. That's the key. And I thought, well, that should have dawned on me before now, but we're going to have conflict in marriage. If we can't figure out what do we do when that happens, we're always going to have problems. But if we can figure out how to resolve conflict, then, then we can have a good marriage. And the key to that is to be generous forgivers yeah. with one another. That's Bob Lapine, and he joins us today on Focus on the Family. Uh, thank you for being with us. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. You know, John, over the years, we have heard some incredible stories about marriages that have been restored. Um, coming back from the brink of disaster, it can be infidelity, it could be just the argumentative nature of the relationship. The one thing that's so true that I've seen for Gene and I is just how we push each other's buttons mm-hmm. at times. And I had to say to myself, not that long ago, <laughs> unfortunately, like, why do I go there? I know I'm going to get this reaction when I say this, and it's so selfish of me. And it just is part of our flesh. And I think what the Lord is trying to teach me, certainly, maybe you, the listener, uh, don't push that button. It doesn't really bring any fruit, right? <laughs> Try something different. Yeah. In today's program, we're not talking about um, physical abuse or deep emotional abuse. If you're in those situations, get to a safe place. Get the help you need. Uh, you can start with a call here to focus on the family. But we're talking about those marriages that are just clunking along that need a little tune-up, that need some help. And today we're going to talk to a great friend, Bob Lapine in a book he's written called Build a Stronger Marriage. That should be everybody's goal, by the way. I love mm-hmm. the simplicity of that title. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the practical steps, um, practical helps that Bob will bring. Uh, I am too. And um, if you would like to contact us and learn more about his book or connect with one of our counselors, our number is 800, the letter A, and the word family. And we've got further details at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And Bob is a pastor, a speaker. Uh, He was, for many years, the co-host of Family Life Today. He's written a number of books, and as you said, Jim, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, this particular one, Build a Stronger Marriage, The Path to Oneness. Bob, welcome to Focus. Welcome back. It is great to be with you guys. Always look forward to the time. I think one of the funniest memories I have of working with you and Dennis was that April Fool's Day where you started the Focus program together and we started Family Life's program on April 1st. And I remember calling John yeah. and saying, I've got this yeah, crazy and, idea. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, we had people just laughing about that. Mm-hmm. And it just showed the great camaraderie that we've always shared with you and Dennis and Family Life and Focus. Well, and, we're in the same line of work in the same struggle, praying yeah. about the same stuff. So it's it's been great to be allied with you guys over yeah, the years. Appreciate it. And as a pastor, let's go to that component of your life experience. You've counseled many couples who probably hit a bump like I was describing. 
little things can start piling up, right? It's just this weird thing. Well, it's it's the natural course of every relationship. Your car over time starts to develop noises and clunks, and if, <laughs> if you're not, that's so true. How do you know that? Because <laughs> I drive too, <laughs> and if you're not going in for regular preventive maintenance and getting things adjusted and tuned up and and tweaked then you're going to find out that the car is going to break down over time. You know, a practical question, I'm sure uh, a listener saying, you know what, I'd love to do that, but time, we're so busy, we have young kids. Speak to the importance of getting that maintenance done. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny you should say that about the car because my Toyota just lit up yesterday yeah. saying, <laughs> maintenance required. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you don't have that billboard for your marriage. It's not a light that'll go off on your dashboard. So, for those couples in different life stages, address that quickly, how important it is to make time. Yeah, this is one of those things that winds up being important but not urgent. Right, so until we, it is. We put it on the back burner, and what happens is over time it just grinds on us a little more, it wears down a little bit more, and, and you're right, until it is. Then there's a, a defining moment in a marriage where we go, how did we get here? Well, you got here because you didn't do the regular preventive maintenance. So I, I remember a friend of mine who said, he, he encourages couples every week have a date, um, every month have a day, and every year have a weekend. Yeah. And just use that time where the two of you can focus on your relationship just to keep it humming so that uh, as you go through life, you're doing well. You know, it's so dynamic with even that simplicity is if you apply that, how much it contributes to positivity in your relationship and marriage. That's not a lot of time if you think about it. Mm. I'm embarrassed to say that I've not been that diligent at times. You know, Regina and I are pretty good with date nights, not as good about a getaway day every month. I'd like to concentrate on that, actually. Mm. And then every year take a, a serious vacation together without the kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm better as at prescribing it than I am at actually <laughs> yeah. taking the counsel. So I just want you to know, the listener, that yeah, even the experts mm-hmm. uh, aren't always doing a great job with that, but a great thing to target and to aim at. In the book, you, you describe some of the mistakes that we make early on. I think one of them is how when we get into marriage early, we make the assumption that we can change that person's defects, <laughs> you know, that I love this person so much, except for those two or three things, but I'm going to work on them and I'll get them to improve in that area. I remember hearing somebody say that the uh, the marriage ceremony is designed to plant <laughs> the wrong idea in our heads because mm-hmm. the bride is in the back of the church and the first thing she sees when she walks into the church is the aisle that she's going to be walking down. Then she looks up and she sees the altar at the front of the church. And then she hears the hymn that is being played in the church. And she looks and goes, aisle, altar, hymn. Aisle, altar, hymn. Aisle, altar, hymn. <laughs> okay, that's good. I've not heard that one before, oh, but that's that is good. good yeah. so, so we do come in. Here, here's what we come in with. We know a limited amount about the person that we're marrying. We have a limited amount of data. And everything we don't know, we're just assuming that it's all going to be good. It'll work out. Exactly. Then we get into marriage and we start learning new things about the other person. And it's not always as good as we thought it was going to be. And we go, wait, why is this not what I thought it was going to be? We come in with a lot of expectations. Right. In fact, you mentioned those three. Let's hit them. Expectations is one. What are those three things that we fail to understand? We come in with expectations about what marriage is going to be, about who our spouse is going to be. A lot of them are are just unknown. A lot of them are based on Hollywood movies and based on mm. uh, pop songs that have taught <laughs> us what we what to expect from a marriage relationship. And we have to go back and say, is the problem in my marriage 
my spouse or is it the expectations that I came in with that were unrealistic expectations in the first place? I think the biggest one for a lot of wives is the expectation is that their husband is going to meet every emotional need that they have. Right. And God didn't design any husband to meet every emotional need in a wife. Let's aim, let's aim for one or two. <laughs> I mean, but No, it's true. Marianne and I were talking this weekend and she was talking about her frustration over the fact that there were certain things that I just was not in tune with about what she's going through emotionally. And she stopped and she said, I guess it's why it's good that I have girlfriends. And I said, of course it's Amen. good. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be able to be in tune with all well, of this. Well, that's a huge comment. I don't want to let that just slip by. I think women do need that network of girlfriends that they can go to and talk and trust. And I, Jean has found that, and it has been so good for us. And her girlfriends listen and understand things about what she's going through emotionally oh. that I'm just clueless about. Totally. And I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> I'm still clueless about it's, it. I, right? I appreciate that honesty. So expectations, expectations. And then what are the other two? Motivations is one of the other things. So what motivated you to get married in the first place? Most, True love. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. We were in, in my case. We dated for four years. Uh, you're either getting married or you need to end this thing and 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 move on. Right? You're I'm, so practical. Well, <laughs> was that some, was that somebody's wow. advice to you, or did you just that come was, to that? That moment? was Marianne's mandate to oh. me. That <laughs> was pretty okay, much good. what she, it was. She's putting a fire on. She I, laid the line yeah. down. I mean, we we were at a point in the in the relationship where yeah, we we are going to have to. I, we were in college. I thought we should wait till we graduate. Well, my original plan was to go to law school. That's three more years. And I'm thinking, can I really get married and start law school at the same time? And she's going, we better. <laughs> <laughs> what in that motivation category beyond the motivation to get married, which you so aptly uh, illustrated right. for us, what, what would be one once you get married that fits that motivational category? Well, I, I think we, we look back and say, what was fueling us coming together okay. in the first place. So for some people, it's, I just want out of the bad situation I'm in, and if I marry you, I'll get out. For some people, it's the clock is ticking. If I don't get married now, I'll never have the baby I really want. For some people, it's the motivation of, we're just going to make each other happy for the rest of our lives. There are all kinds of superficial motivations, mm -hmm. and there was an epiphany for me. This didn't happen until 15 years into our marriage I was sitting down with a group of other pastors, and I said, if you were going to talk to couples getting married, and you were going to share with them an important scripture about marriage, and it couldn't be the usual ones, can't go to Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3, you can't even go to Genesis 2. And they started giving me very practical advice. They said, Ephesians 4, preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another. All of this was good. But I had two guys who said, I would share the verse one of them said, this is a verse I proposed with. It's Psalm 34.3. And I couldn't pull that up on my, I had to go to my, my Bible and look that one up. But I'd heard the verse, I just never applied it to marriage. It's the verse that says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Yeah. And for me, it was like, that's what marriage is all about. If there's a, if there's a right motivation for marriage, it's so that the two of us can come together and magnify the Lord and exalt his name in a greater way than we're able to do on our own. We tend to think it's about our mutual happiness or our support or the companionship. All of that is, is God's blessing 
to a marriage that has a higher purpose, and that is pointing people to Jesus. So that that really is the third thing, the purpose right. of our union, right. and knowing that, and that does begin to cascade, hopefully, better behavior, better uh, treatment of one another. Here's how that works out practically for Marianne and me. When we know that that's our goal, then when we find ourselves at a place where we're not on the same page, we can say, okay, time out. What would honor the Lord here? Mm. What's God's desire for us? Because I know what I want, and you know what you want, and we don't necessarily want the same things. Now the question is, what does God want? Yeah. And let's unite around that. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Are you remarried? Over 40% of couples are. If you have a blended family, you know how complex it can be, especially when it comes to estate planning. Ensuring that you're honoring your new spouse and all kids is essential. If you need help preparing a will for your blended family but don't know where to start, Focus on the Family can help. Download our resource, 16 Questions to Ask If You Have a Blended Family. It's our gift to you at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash BlendedFamilyEbook. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Bob, one of the things that Dean and I have really struggled with, and you addressed this in the book, is the baggage we bring in from our family of origin. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 30 years of marriage, we're still unpacking some of those bags that we've been dragging around for all this uh, this time. What do you think about that? Well, I, I remember sitting with a couple um, who were in a in a hard spot in their marriage, and the wife was expressing her frustration. She said, uh, my husband does this all the time. It drives me crazy. And then she said, my brother did this when we were growing up, and it made me so mad. And I thought, hang on just a second. You have unresolved issues with your brother that you're taking out on your husband. This is where the patterns that that were developed. Where did we learn how to do relationships? Where did we learn how to communicate with one another? Where did we learn how to be kind to one another? It's in our family of origin. And some people grew up in families where when conflict came, you shouted it out and then you all hugged when it was over. Others grew up in a in a home where when there's conflict, you go to your corner, I go to my corner, we'll talk in three days. Mm, yeah. And if the two of you get married and one of you shouting and the other one's running away, there's real issues in how you handle all of this. And we have to peel back and go, okay, what did I learn in my family of origin? What's right about that? What needs to be addressed about that? What are some of the bad patterns or bad habits that I need to deal with? And what are some of the ghosts or the shadows from the past that are still finding their way into our marriage relationship. Yeah. You know, uh, in fact, that identity issue is probably the core issue for all of us. Um, whose are we and why are we here? Mm. And we get so messed up in that pursuit because we are bombarded by the culture about what we need to be, where we need to find that identity. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and I think so many people are starting to find out that if their identity is found in their job or if it's found in the approval that they get from other people, or even if it's found in how you're perceived by your kids or how you're perceived by your spouse, those can't be the foundation of your identity. Your identity has to be, what does God say is true about me? Yeah. And you have to live in that and then everything else, if you're built on that foundation, everything else can handle. Bob, a practical question in that regard, we can hear each other saying this and we know this to be true. 
But how do we, if you were looking at your core identity, how do you pull out those destructive modules? Yeah. If I can, I'm kind of a linear thinker at times. And how do we put in the right module, the God module? It, people can hear us say this and they can agree with us right. and then still struggle to not absorb the world's identity for themselves. Let's pick on men for a while since we've picked on women. Um, you know, the guy's identity at work. And so you work 12, 14 hours and then your marriage falls apart. Uh, how do we remove that? Say, okay, my identity is not with my job. It's with my family. It's with my commitment to my wife. We often drift toward finding our identity in the thing where we have the most success or where we feel the most affirmation. And so a man will often drift toward work because at work, when he does a good job, he gets a bonus or he gets the boss calling him and saying, you did a good job, or they have a celebration because he brought in the deal, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. He goes home and does a good job, and that's expected. Or if he does a bad job, he hears about it quickly. And so pretty soon he goes, you know, I get more strokes. I get more positive affirmation in the workplace than I do at home. I'm going to just spend more time here. But this is where we have to recognize that it is not the cheer of the crowd in either arena that should be our focus. Our focus should be to hear the the cheers of heaven for what we're committing ourselves to. And so in the workplace, in the home, we're we're performing, we're living out our identity to please and honor God. And there'll be some challenges in, in whatever arena we're in. But we can if we can lay our head in the pillow at night and go, um, I was about God's business today then whatever your wife or the boss or the world around you is saying, you can know I'm, I'm living the way I'm supposed to be living. You know, um, that whole string of things that we talk about in terms of family of origin, uh, trauma, guilt, shame, they all affect the marital relationship. So how do we, as a married couple, how do you begin to lasso that and say, honey, let, let's talk about some of these things? Yeah, I, I think this, <laughs> this is where we have to, again, come back to what's going to be the clear foundation for where we're living. Are we building our marriage on patterns from the past and on our preferences and on the habits that we've accumulated over the years? Or are we building our marriage on a renewed platform that says we're going to put away the things that are destructive and not just put away the destructive things, but replace them with the positive virtues that the Bible talks about. So put on kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, patience. We, a, a lot of people, I think, Jim, find mm. themselves going, I'm going to try really hard not to be this person, but they don't work equally hard to be the other person, the kind, compassionate, humble person that the Bible calls us to. And in the power of the Spirit, we need to be cultivating those positive virtues while we try to put away the negative. Bob, you also write in your book about anger. And I, I think it's an important one, if we're honest. I mean, I feel like I controlled my anger generally pretty well. But speak to that, that, oh, that wicked tool that does such destruction, anger. Yeah, anger, I think anger is a secondary emotion. I think anger is provoked in us when we are fearful, when we find ourselves afraid. We use anger as a way to strike back at the person who is prompting a fear in us. So if I'm afraid of what's going to happen, I get angry hoping that you'll back off and that 
I can use my anger as a way to to stop you from threatening me or from me feeling anxious or fearful in this situation. Mm. I think when we recognize that there's something behind the anger, then instead of just trying to tamp down our anger, we can say, what's really going on in my soul when anger is stirred up? And how can I find the peace in my soul so that the anger is not provoked? You know, let me, for the, let's just put it in this context. Women can get angry too, by the way, but I'll put it in the male context. For the wife listening, whose husband struggles getting that under control. And again, I'm not talking about physical abuse or deep emotional abuse. You need quick help for that. Get to safety, like we said. But I'm talking about just that general thing. When something isn't right, he goes to that anger mode. Is there anything she can say that's constructive Hmm. to help him get his attention on that so that they don't have to deal with that? Yeah. In the moment, I'm not sure what you can say because uh, in the moment when anger is being expressed, I mean, I I know in our marriage there are times when it's just, okay, time out to your corners. Yeah, get out of the way. We just need some time (laughs) to let things settle down. But uh, I do think we can come back around after that. And again, here's where I think the Bible's practical. Galatians 6 says, right after talking about the fruit of the Spirit, it says, if you see somebody who's caught in a sin, then you who are spiritual, it says, that is you who have spiritually prepared for this moment. And the goal is restore that person with a spirit of meekness. So your spirit should be a gentle, meek spirit. And the goal is, I want to restore you to who God created you to be, which is not this angry, out of control person. Isn't that what you want too? And then I'd say, when you feel angry, what's really going on in your heart? Can we, can we look and say, is there something you're afraid of? Yeah. Oftentimes just asking that question, is there something you're really afraid of that makes you angry? Some husbands will have a hard time getting there because we're peeling into parts of their emotional makeup that nobody has ever gone to with them before. Typically family of origin stuff when it comes to that outburst right. of anger. Right. That's, that's a, you know, a childhood trauma thing. Let me ask you about the power of forgiveness because we're going to run out of time and I still want to get to the kind of the four practical uh, best practices, yes. but uh, the power of forgiveness and how it needs to play in a marriage. Well, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, once said that uh, a great marriage is the union of two great forgivers. Yeah. And isn't that true? If yeah. we don't know how, in fact, I remember driving through Seattle, I was getting ready to speak at a marriage conference and I was listening to Focus on the Family and Gary Smalley was on Focus on the Family. Mm. <laughs> and Gary Smalley in his inimitable way said, I'm going to tell you the one thing, this one thing will revolutionize your marriage. You can hear <laughs> good, Gary say will And I'm thinking, well, I better know this. I'm about to speak to people. What's the one thing that will revolutionize your marriage? And he said, if you can learn how to forgive... He said, that's how to resolve conflict and forgive in a marriage. That's the key. And I thought, well, that's that should have dawned on me before now, but we're going to have conflict in marriage. Yeah. If we can't figure out what do we do when that happens, we're always going to have problems. But if we can figure out how to resolve conflict, then we can have a good marriage. And the key to that is is to be generous forgivers yeah. with one another. Let's hit those best four practices for strong marriages. What are they? One of them is that idea of generous forgiveness. We, we've got to be quick forgivers. We've got to learn how to overlook many transgressions. Love uh, covers a multitude of sins and then how to confront when necessary. The, the second one is extravagant love. 
And I think a lot of us are are chintzy with how we express love to one another. We're thrifty, right? We don't want to. <laughs> okay. We don't want to give. That's away. generous way to say it. <laughs> we don't want to give away too much. You know, we don't want to run out. Well, you can't run out of love if you're receiving an abundant supply of love from God. You can't run out of love to give to your spouse. Mm. So generous or extravagant love, uh, generous forgiveness. The third one is enthusiastic encouragement. We've got to learn how to be cheerleaders for one another in marriage. Life and death's in the power of the tongue. If we're saying positive things to one another in our marriage relationship, that can be so strengthening to a marriage. Yeah. And then the last one is common commitments to one another, or with one another. We, if, if we're on the same page about what matters most, that's the clear foundation in a marriage. When you're not on the same page about what matters most, your marriage is on a more fragile foundation. And I know we're talking to some folks where a husband or a wife is a strong believer, the other spouse is not, and they they would be the ones who would tell us it it makes for a challenge in our marriage relationship mm-hmm. because we don't have these shared priorities. I'm not talking about priorities of, about where we're going to eat on Thursday night or the priority of... Yeah, the core core. I'm talking about what's life all about, what's most important to us, what matters most to us, the little stuff we can work our way through. But if we've got those common convictions... That's going to be so strengthening for a marriage. Yeah, Bob, this is so good, and you have hit it. I mean, I think people have gotten a taste yeah. of uh, what's in this really quick read of a book that uh, Bob has written, Build a Stronger Marriage. Thank you for being with us and making the effort. It's so fun to see you, number one. But number two, just being here with us and sharing together and fellowshipping together, thank you. It's a delight. Always love being with you guys. And, you know, the core thing there, we're here for you. Uh, as Bob said, I mean, we're speaking to you. And uh, we hope that if you're in that situation where things aren't the way they should be and you feel it, act on it. Don't spend another decade waiting for something to improve in your marriage and not taking it to the garage (laughs) to get the work done. Let us be at least that first mechanic that you can turn to to say, you know, let us help you with the tune-up. And Bob's book is a great way to do that. Also, we have counselors. We have Hope Restored, the intensive effort that we provide uh, that can help the more uh, seriously strained marriages. But, I mean, like Family Life Focus, we're just a, a giant resource center for you. Uh, tap us and let us be present and be part of your healing. Yeah, we're a phone call away, and our number is 800, the letter A in the word family. As Jim said, counselors, resources, uh, so much to offer you. 800, the letter A in the word family. Or stop by the website for further details. Uh, it's focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And if you can make a donation of any amount to support the work of Focus as we come around marriages, uh, come alongside, encourage, uh, we would appreciate it so much. A monthly pledge or one-time gift will make a difference as we move forward with this ministry to couples. And uh, we'd invite your participation today when you call 800-A-FAMILY. When you donate, either a monthly gift or a one-time donation, we'll say thank you by sending Bob's book to you. Uh, We want you to get this book and uh, maybe share it with somebody in your circles. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Is your marriage holding on by a thread? 
For deep hurt, you need deep healing that only comes from the Lord. And you'll find it at a Focus on the Family Hope Restored Intensive in Michigan. Our licensed Christian counselors will help you and your spouse get to the root of your issues in just three to five days. And it works. 80% of the couples are still married two years after attending. Learn more at HopeRestored.com and talk with a trusted advisor. That's HopeRestored.com.